you, that compliance work that you require, you're going to have to put in some strict measures in place. It would mean that you'd have to tell young people that once you're bonding, you can't travel at all because you're probably going to force young people to, to run off. Because if you're going to bond me three years to five years, are you going to bond me five years or more to Jamaica and you can't guarantee me a job? What are you bonding me to? Poverty? Welcome to another episode of Checkmate, a political podcast from Tenement Yard Media. You can follow us on Twitter at Tenement Yard underscore, and you can visit our website at www.tenementyardmedia.com. And I'm the host for this episode. My name is Paige. And in this episode, we'll be speaking with Christina Williams regarding the reform for education in tertiary schools. Christina is a law student at the University of the West Indies Mona campus. Um, she has a Bachelor of Science degree in International Relations and Public Policy. She's also the president of the Jamaica Union of Tertiary Schools, the JUTS, um, and the former guild president of the University of the West Indies Mona campus. So thanks for joining me today, Christina. Thank you. I just want to clarify though that it's the Jamaica Union of Tertiary Students, ah. not schools. Okay, thank you for that. No problem. So the reform for education in Jamaica 2021 report was launched on Thursday, January 14th, 2022. Um, it was developed by the Jamaica Education Transformation Committee, which is headed by the world-renowned sociologist, Dr. Orlando Patterson. And the report is a blueprint for the establishment of... Um, a comprehensive strategy to improve student performance and educational productivity across the sector. The 342-page document has 54 prioritized recommendations, which include governance and accountability, early childhood education, teaching curriculum and teacher training, tertiary education, technical and vocational education and training, infrastructure and technology, and finance. For listeners who do not know about the Jamaica Union of Tertiary Students, could you briefly explain what it is and its role in Jamaica's educational sector? Sure thing. Also, big up to Namet Yad um, and yourself, uh, Madam you. Host Page, for having me here, uh, representing tertiary students in this space and to give our feedback on the report. So, JUTS has been around for over 45 years. I am actually the first woman president in recorded history. So, you know, big up women, big up women representation. And what we provide is really a bridge between students and government institutions and to a further extension, other larger institutions in regard in regards to tertiary student issues. So I just want to summarize to say that we're really a bridge. We accelerate uh, issues to a higher level we work on policy we work on programs but what we try to do is to first support the efforts of the local institutions that is the student councils unions etc mm -hmm. and from there we look at issues that pervades the tertiary space 
So even though different institutions may encounter different scenarios in a, in a different way, uh, we know that there are some issues that are general. So, mm-hmm. and I'm sure we're going to get into that later on and we'll talk about the report. So financing tertiary education, ensuring that our young people are tooled and skilled in a way that fits the needs or answers the call um, that, that the job sector, the labor, the labor, the labor sector um, has right now. Um, so those are issues that we look at more general issues, but in regards to specific matters that may concern a local institution, we may accelerate and help them to get a solution uh, in that regard. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, and I think our listeners will definitely be able to learn something from that brief intro. I know I did. Um, so now, currently, there's no legislation that governs the tertiary education sector. Therefore, the report has called for a Higher Education Act and policy to be passed and finalized. What are some things that Jutz believes should be included in this legislation for it to effectively transform the sector? Okay, so I firstly want to say that as we speak, there is an ongoing initiative to have a higher education policy. In fact, I am one of the persons who sits on that technical steering committee. So mm-hmm. I guess I have a bird's eye view or a more intimate understanding of the process and what's really happening as we speak in terms of making that policy a reality. But speaking in my mm-hmm. capacity as the president of JITS and what JITS would want to see, we firstly would want to ensure that many of the recommendations in this report are actually given teeth through this policy or they are prioritized through this policy. The truth is, Paige, Jamaica's always had a very, more than many other countries that I have come across, Jamaica's always had a very good understanding of the needs of the education sector and even and just really and truly the needs of students because we have a vibrant mm-hmm. student advocacy movement both through the tertiary space as well as through the national secondary students council space and we have always been informed from students by students and we have all these different type of commissions task forces reports even before this particular commission uh, we have always had some kind of consultations being done at the local and national level mm-hmm. so i think jamaica has always been quote unquote informed in terms of what is needed to make the education sector one that would truly produce the graduates that we want to see at all levels. But we have always failed to add teeth. We have always failed to execute these programs and policies in a way that truly fulfills the mandate that we set out to um, to fulfill in the first place. So I think that Juts would want to see these recommendations being given force. They're prioritized in this policy. We'd also want to ensure that there is an entire section that speaks to security. I mean, even this report didn't really speak to security of students, safety and security Mm -hmm. of students. I think it's something that is very easy to forget, especially now during the pandemic where majority of our students are still at home. And you're saying, well, they're Mm -hmm. quote unquote safe there. But safety and security of students pervades even more than them just being on campus, right? And yeah. so we'd want to see a section on that. We don't have any kind of safety and security policy right now for students. That doesn't exist. There is a guideline document 
but when you read mm-hmm. it it's all inadequate so we definitely need to see that in uh included in the policy we also want to see uh more def- um definite or a defined ways in which we're going to have this uh, this hybrid form of 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 learning so face to face face to face learning while it is that that may work for some or people may argue most of our students particularly at the secondary and primary and early childhood levels i don't think that full face to face is the way forward for tertiary students there needs to be a choice mm-hmm. for our students and because i don't want to take over you know the, the, the question here and and also give you an opportunity <laughs> to input i just want to quickly say that because we have the issue right now where government cannot adequately fund all the students that are enrolled in tertiary institutions yeah. and all the students that would want to be enrolled i mean we only have a 27 percent enrollment rate and we haven't even talked about the dropout rate as yet and because we don't have enough funding for all those students we need to be able to facilitate them working so to supplement their income so if you say to a student you have to come to school you have to be in the classroom from eight to five or whatever their schedule is then you are already limiting a number of students from being able to access tertiary education, from being able to upskill and retool themselves. So we have to talk about that in that policy. There has to be definite steps of how we're going to engage tertiary students in a hybrid format so we can facilitate them developing themselves and advancing themselves in other ways. No, yeah, I think that you make a really, really good point about security as well, just on the heels of the latest crime statistics in Jamaica. I think that's that, right. that's a really, really good point that should be considered. The report notes that during consultations with different stakeholders in the sector, it finds that for many students, university programs are grounded on the regurgitation of content and programs at the tertiary level do not reflect the demands for the job market and are dated or no longer relevant. What <laughs> is just standing on this statement? Just standing on this statement is that we fully agree. In fact, I think that statement came from Jutz because if you look at the persons mm-hmm. who were consulted, myself, when I was in the capacity of guild president at UWE, was actually consulted. There are quite a few recommendations there that actually came from me. I was reading it and I was like, whoa, these are my recommendations. Um, so we would have actually said this. Um, I would have fully endorsed this particular comment. The truth is, Paige, is that we have always talked about the fourth industrial revolution, which is now here. And we have always talked about ensuring that the programs in our tertiary institutions reflect the requirements or the current needs, or let's say the forecasted needs, because we can't just, we can't just focus on the now, we think about the thereafter as well. Um, focus on yes. the needs of the sector within the next 10 years or so. And we've always done that you know even the prime minister when he did his presentation at the launch where where i attended virtually he talked about it as well so we have we we all agree the world agrees on this point but once again as i mentioned earlier is that we have always failed though to execute these particular mandates or these particular priorities so right now we find that there's a there's a there's a there's a verification in terms of how the tertiary institutions execute their programs. In that, at the Mm -hmm. traditional, and I use the word traditional in in air quotes, (laughs) um, those institutions that the U Mm -hmm. with the U, et cetera, 
they teach you how to learn and there's a lot of theory-based content there uh yes you get this pat on your shoulder you know pop color type of thing to say oh i'm a graduate of the ue or the utech or etc etc but then what tends to happen is that you you tend not to learn the real expectations of the job right you don't tend to get the practical skills that is necessary to advance or even before we talk about advancement just to be comfortable in the job to start off with while at the community colleges mm -hmm. level uh at the te technical and vocational um tertiary institution which also falls under the JITS mandate you find that you get a lot of practical um hard skills but not so much the softer skills and not so much the learn to learn type of skills so what does that mean it simply means that mm -hmm. we have to look at both types of institutions or rather the myriad of institutions because it's really a diverse um, tertiary sector that we have here in jamaica and think about what are the core foundational skills that we want all our graduates to have and when i say graduates i don't mean them graduating from this new tech. i mean graduating from the hard trust nta programs graduating from the tent um nct vet programs uh all those programs what are the core mandates or rather what are the core skills that we want all our graduates to have so when we look at a skilled sector for jamaica no matter what level you're at whether you have a diploma associate degree a phd a master's every single person has this particular mm -hmm. skill and this actually happens before we even mm -hmm. transition fully into the tertiary space might i add but i won't get into that too much because i'm here speaking on behalf of tertiary students right but yes so we talk about the soft skills right we talk about the ability to learn to learn to learn we talk about um customer service customer service necessarily mean oh you're a cashier and you're speaking to people but just how you interact with people um just general leadership skills how you present yourself how you're able to build uh to interact with teams even if you are an ambivert or an intro or, or an introvert uh we talk about change management we talk about ability to speak and to present those are all skills that we want soft skills that we want right for everyone and there are others you know be able to write your resume properly and do a proper cv and send out uh all of those things and then we yeah. talk now about the harder skills uh where we want to ensure that everyone is able to well everyone has basic technological skills right everybody should be able to type you know everybody should be able to type a letter all right i know how to properly format that letter everybody don't need to be able to program mm -hmm. and to code but you should be able to navigate microsoft um 365 where all the different spreadsheets mm -hmm. i know it sounds so simple and i you know almost ridiculous but you'll be surprised to know that there are lots of young people who don't know how to navigate these platforms effectively and they only realize that they can't mm -hmm. when it's time for them to apply for a job and they're like oh shucks I actually can't yeah so we need basic skills and that's why we talk about micro credits because how can we ensure that young people are skilled in these areas without requiring them to do an entire degree on it so i don't need to go and do an history an history degree for me to have basic knowledge about the history of my country and my region right so yeah. that's what i'm talking about and then after you you have those basic soft skills 
are those basic hard skills that we, we want the, we want it to be the foundation of the skilled population then we talk about next what is your specialty what do you want to do with your life what do you want to be known for as an expert quote unquote or even if you're a generalist what exactly skills do you need how to upskill and retool and once again it shouldn't be that for every time you need to upskill and retool you need to get an entire degree not all of us want to become um, academics we don't want to go and do a phd we don't want to do no thesis we don't want to do no research paper but we want to be skilled and we want to be retooled and we want to be upskilled yes. because we want to be competitive in a global market so going back to the original question i know i kind of went a bit but all of those things are attached to the question that you just asked which is about are the these programs are these programs able or are these programs at a place where we can say they fully prepare us for the working world and the answer is no because we tend to bifurcate the focus oh you're going to a ue so you just need to be theoretical driven but that doesn't prepare me fully oh yeah. you're going to um, a community college or you're going to a technical institution where you're doing engineering or whatever or you just need to focus on the hard skills that doesn't prepare you fully either so there has to be this comprehensive development this 360 degree focus on the graduate and ensuring that no matter what program they want to do or what at what level they want to do it at the 360 degree development will be the result at the end of the day no yeah i, I completely agree and i i'm not super familiar with the structure of degrees at UE and how often they change but from my own university experience my right. university placed a lot of emphasis on generating new degrees so the master's degree I have I was a part of the inaugural class there are only 13 people with it now because they looked at the market and they realized oh these are the skills that recent graduates are saying they wish they had so right. they've and even since I've graduated in May, like May just gone, they've added a new degree program because the market is so rapidly changing as an wow. educational institution. It right. would behoove you to change along with it, not just in the hard skills that you're teaching students, but definitely the soft skills as well. The hard skills get you through the door, but the soft skills is really what seals the deal on that interview. You know, right, being able right. to say, yes, I know how to do Excel and Microsoft and, you know, sending emails appropriately and all of these other things that are so much a part of um, your working day. Right. And I would want to even, you know, talk about just, just really quickly uh, advanced soft skills because yeah. when we, t um, we think about the pandemic right now, um, skills like change management is now important and change management is important in every sector at every level because you have to think about how is it that you can adapt and adapt quickly and you can have your teams uh, transition to this new norm whatever that looks like in these institutions and even if the change management skill won't necessarily mean that you are the one leading the charge because you're not a manager or supervisor or whatever but even at your level as an individual, you have to be able to move quicker, um, transition quicker because people who can't transition and they don't want them to be left behind. Yes. So that's something that we should look at. How are we um, developing um, young people or just people overall who are able to transition through different scenarios um, um, quicker and able to adapt um, or adopt whatever it is that they need to adapt quicker. Um, we also also talk about 
you know how it is that i guess I, I don't know if i should even say this but how is it that we operate in a remote work type of environment it's something that we take for granted right because when we look at even the, going back to the raw education sector a lot of what we saw when i was your president i was a good president mm-hmm. i was the first pandemic president so my mm-hmm. my second semester was when the pandemic would have would have really you know been introduced um to well, the, the virus was introduced to jamaica in yeah. my second semester as president and what we realized was how many of our teachers weren't equipped to host classes online mind you UE has always had an online teaching platform that were collaborate. It has always mm-hmm. been there and some teachers would have been able to use it for different reasons at different times. But there were so many teachers that weren't equipped and this resource was lying around for years being paid for. So why is it that it took a pandemic for these teachers, for, for the university to have this 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 um school-wide um retooling, re um upskilling program um, program for the teachers that literally prepare them on how to maneuver the platform right and um and then in some ways had to prepare students as well because they realized that even students themselves were having issues and that's another thing too Paige we tend to take it for granted that because a young person is young you know once they're 30 and below they automatically know how to navigate technology and that's not true yeah it's not and so we should never take skills of our population the development really development of our country lies in the hands of people human resources are the heart of the development of a nation so we should never take these things for granted and so that's why i would say that soft skills and hard skills both of them combined has to be at the focus of every institution no matter what it is that you're offering as a degree program at whatever level because the basic degree development of this individual is important and we shouldn't trap people into this into this space where you're saying well you can only access this part oh <clears throat> if you're not doing a computer science degree you can't access these skills that's why we need microcrediting uh, microcrediting type of program offerings so that people don't have to go through an entire three-year, four-year degree to be able to upskill and retool themselves. No, yeah, and just to readdress that issue of the dissatisfaction of tertiary students with the current programs, the commission recommended that similarly to addressing the dissatisfaction of secondary students, institutions should invest in microcrediting and stackable degrees. Can you give um, some examples or some more examples of the microcrediting and stackable degrees that you'd like to see introduced in Jamaica's tertiary, tertiary institutions? Sure. So I think a number of these microcredits should be a part of the tech industry. And mm-hmm. when I say the tech industry, I don't even mean um, just programming and coding and people who are in, um, we call them architects or you know software engineers, whatever. Mm-hmm. I think that persons who are doing quote-unquote traditional or non-tech degrees, they also have a space in tech industries. And why is that? Because tech industries are really just institutions themselves, like every other normal institution. And they also need persons who are human resource managers you know they need people who are in accounting they need people who are in law they need people who are secretaries i mean whatever it is i, I mean even the education system you're a teacher you went to school did a teaching degree but then you're finding so many online institutions 
um, right now that are pervading the space. Every is another online school pop up. But yeah. as a teacher who went went to Michael, you know, let them say the Michael, that's how they call it, one of the more esteemed ter- um, teacher training institutions, or you yes. went to a UE or one of the other teacher colleges, um, you you learn how to navigate a face-to-face learning environment. So they teach you how to write on chalkboard and how to make charts and those yeah. things. But these institutions, are they teaching you how to create a PowerPoint presentation that's engaging? Mm-hmm. Right? How is it that you create video content to engage your students who may be at the primary level or the early child level? They don't they don't they don't want to sit and read a screen. They want to be engaged by some funny content that they can sing along or talk to and it talks back or whatever the case is. So yeah. once again, I know some of my suggestions sound so simple and almost ridiculous, but we were talking about teacher institutions and you're training teachers to go to teach students. And one of the things that you will hear, and I'm not sure if you saw that in the report, but you'd have probably seen it where students complained about the fact that they're not being engaged currently in the online space. And that's why they're rushing to go back to the classroom. And it's mm-hmm. not because face-to-face learning means that, oh, by itself, it solves all the issues around, you know, the old knowledge gap that we're seeing right now, or the fact that students are disengaged. It, it doesn't mean that, actually. It means that we're lazy. Let me repeat that. It means that we're lazy. It means that we're jumping back to the old norm because we don't want to put in the time and effort and the money exactly. to, to invest mm-hmm. in what is needed for the future, which is engaging content for online learning. Because I'm sure if students were learning online, we would need to go back face to face or at least go back to face to face in this format where we're saying, oh, all and sundry have to go back into the classroom. There is no yeah. choice um, provided mm-hmm. for you because we don't want to invest in uh, engaging content. And for tertiary students, as I said before, it shouldn't be that you're forcing us back into the classroom because some of us, we don't need to be there or we don't want to be there or we can't be there fully because we need to work. And, you know, as I said before, different scenarios. So yeah. it should be that these teachers that are being sure and i'm using this one, one of the examples and the old microcredit thing that as a microcredit for teachers right in their learning a part, a part of their 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 curricula is that they are learning how to create online content for the classroom age-appropriate online content for the classroom that's one microcredit i see right away right there and it doesn't mean that they need to become a tech expert or they need to become yeah. a quote-unquote content creator like the people on TikTok. But they should be able to navigate certain platforms, right? Another microcredit I, I see is uh, leadership. And, you know, as a yes. person who may be classified by some as a leader, I know how important that skill is. Because at every level, you need to be able to showcase some level of leadership if you want to um, advance. Because either you're going to be a leader in your area, in your field, you're you know, a leader or a quote-unquote expert, right? You mm-hmm. have to be able to talk up, you have to be able to offer solutions. So you can look at you and say, oh, you know, this young person has ideas and I want to give them the opportunity to move in this company. Or if it's their own company that they have, they also have to lead their team and lead their vision. So I think that's a soft skill that we tend to think too much about and be like, you know, leadership, is that really a microcredit? Should we really offer a certificate in that? 
but at every level when you think about the people who transition to becoming leaders in their field they all have certain levels of leadership now you don't need to become a leader guru and start offering personal coach sessions on instagram right but or become a master a master class but there should be a level of yes, assertiveness in you and confidence in you where you're able to grow in your field and to grow in your company or if it's your own company grow your own company i think those are some of the ones that i want to speak to right now <laughs> no thank you and i think especially in the pandemic that a lot of people are rushing to go back to what i'm guessing they think life was like before instead right. of looking towards <laughs> the future and these right. kind of innovative ways to to you know to do everything education health all of these things um, right. and that's why we're going to get left behind again exactly and the, i'm really hoping that we can prevent that because there are right. brilliant and capable young people in this country that deserve a chance at a prosperous future like the, the real future Never waste a crisis. Exactly. Um, what is Jutsu's position on the commission's recommendation that the tertiary sector, especially community colleges and more universities, should partner more effectively with private sector entities to provide on-the-job training hubs in organizations? So private sector partnerships uh, between tertiary institutions has always been uh, best practice, I believe, because we already know that government by itself as an mm -hmm. institution cannot and may never be able to provide all the resources or the opportunities that young people need to advance themselves. So for sure, that's a given. However, I think that what we need to look at as well is the intentionality of these partnerships. So a lot of times we do things with just a checkbox in mind, you know? just like oh public mm -hmm. public private partnerships are like a good idea so let's just have that you know and we're not really thinking about yeah. what industries are we really partnering with and are we allowing our young people access and exposure to uh, and what does exposure and access look like for me I am not someone who endorses exploitation of the population at all mm -hmm. so for me the first step well not the first step but first option is always paid internships or if not paid internships a little stipend yeah yes because it, it it's it's a lot of times when young people go into these spaces and they're working at these institutions they're giving them ideas they are advancing their their services right they're not just paper pushers in a just in a filing cabinet mm -hmm. and just those days done where they just have young people filing stuff most of the times young people are sitting in rooms and they're giving ideas and they're advancing these services and they won't necessarily get a full-time full-time job after that but while they're there they're adding value and once exactly. that you're adding value you should be compensated at some level and these private institutions most of them can afford it so why not incentivize that kind of engagement or rather i would say why not give the students a little financial support because you know they're students and most of them are from low socioeconomic backgrounds majority of our tertiary mm -hmm. students in Jamaica are from low socioeconomic backgrounds because the one who can afford it they tend to go abroad anyways right 
or they already have mom and daddy business to run they don't need to necessarily get a formal tertiary education or if they do as i said before they get it elsewhere so the ones that, that tend to be here and tend to stay here majority of them are already from um impoverished backgrounds and so they need the financial support so i fully endorse or I first advance mm-hmm. the point of paid internships or not a fully paid internship some kind of stipend at the next level however if it is that there won't be stipends or uh, paid internships I think we should look at meaningful mentorship of young people not all the time a young person need an internship yes work experience is important and I put that as the first option as I said before but at the next level is mentorship because what we find is that young people they go into these spaces and they are an intern or whatever but there's no real guidance they have a supervisor who says to them okay this is your time sheet mm-hmm. i know you have to do 20 hours just do this this and this and this and this and it's going to sign at the end of the two weeks or the end of the three months or whatever that you did whatever and you get your hours and you can graduate and that's it they leave the experience with some experience right but they still feel so adrift you know we need some kind of intentional engagement with these young people because lots of us we don't and I, i'm talking about myself we still are figuring ourselves yeah. out and our goals out and our dreams out and our opportunities out because i mean when i told you from doing law when i just started law on my law journey um which is years ago i mean i just started law no in terms of a student but i've always wanted to go law and when I thought about law, the first thing I wanted to do was I wanted to be a human yeah. rights lawyer. And that's still very much what I want to do. But over the years, I've been exposed to other environments. Uh, I've been exposed to tech. I'm not a tech, I'm not very tech savvy, actually. I'm not no tech guru or anything. But having worked in a tech company um, and seen the different jobs that they require to make that tech company run i'm realizing that mm-hmm. you know i could actually become somebody who's an expert in tech law right and it still attaches itself to human rights mm-hmm. why because cyber bullying and cyber terrorism is a big thing now and people using the internet to do scams and to traffic people and um people's data being used and 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 um you know you've been held at ransom we see the whole thing right now with ncu and the people's data and the entire institution being held at ransom those things actually tap back into human rights but guess what the human rights that i would be accustomed to or i knew of three years ago would have um, evolved because of the access i was given and the mentorship i've been given and the opportunities that have been given so yeah. now i see human rights as so much more than just syrian refugee crisis right and hunger and 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 war and famine i see it as me being here in a country that probably don't have bombings but i'm still at risk of certain things because of how i use the internet Mm -hmm. or i use certain um certain platforms and how they have been able to take my data and use it my right as a human being or you know is still needed and protected in that space so that's why we need young people to get mentorship and while we talk about public private partnerships mentorship has to be a part of it and the mentorship has to be ongoing so just to summarize yeah. that point the engagement is important i endorse it fully but it has to be intentional and it has to be multi-layered it has to involve internships that are paid stipends but also mentorship that talks about you know tracking this young person through the system yeah. not just to say check a box oh we had a little mentorship program that lasted for two weeks and that's it 
but how is it that you support this young person as they make decisions as they progress through life? The Jamaica Labour Survey 2019 outlines that only 9.3% of males and only 17.7% of women mm. in Jamaica has a degree. Where many young people go abroad after tertiary education, thus making a brain drain a significant issue in Jamaica. Between 1965 and 2000, the IMP reported that Jamaica lost 85% of its tertiary educated labor force, right. a figure only exceeded by Guyana with 89%. Consequently, the commission recommended that to address this brain drain issue in Jamaica, the government should measure bonds to the beneficiaries of any government support for an appropriate length of time and allow for longer moratorium period for SLB loans for graduates who remain in Jamaica. Can you expound on this recommendation? Sure. So I do recall explicitly given that um, recommendation in regards to the SLB moratorium period and having that um, extended. One of the things I would have also talked about directly to the commission um, during the consultations uh, is that the extension of the moratorium period for SLB is really a band-aid on a deeper, um, you know, a deeper issue. <clears throat> and I would, I would say deeper festering issue. Yes. Because no matter how many years you give a person to pay a loan, I mean, in, in, in theory, it sounds like, yeah, man, the longer time you have, the more likely you are to repay your loan. And that's what we want. Because mm -hmm. we know that if you don't repay your loans, other young people who are coming up, other students will be um, affected negatively by that. You know, the coffers are not infinite. Yes. Um, so, yes, of course, definitely. That's something I would have suggested. But I would have also added that we need to talk about the bigger issue of the quality of, of, of the pay, the quality of the, I would say, the pay ranges or the pay scale in yes. Jamaica, right? Because you give me 30 years to pay off this loan or 10 years or 18 years or whatever. But if for the next five to 10 years of my life, I am making between $60,000 to $100,000 and $100,000 meaning that next three years before I start making that, um, then oh, I still need another 150 years to, to pay off my loan. Because remember now that young people aren't just paying SLB, they are paying for rent. Or eventually yes. a mortgage and 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 they, they want the little car because you know a pandemic no you know want to take bus okay you exactly. catch virus on the bus or whatever mm -hmm. or it's difficult to get to work and there's so many other bills that you have to pay and when we look at i mean it, it sounds like joe but when you think about the look at the news and every day something is is is, is increasing we know that right now we have chicken shortage and the chicken press through the roof and yeah. jps get, got an approval recently by our to raise um their fees and there's always something in the news about some kind of hiking prices young people uh salaries are responding to these hikes plus they're paying an slb so the moratorium period helps ish but long term how much does it really help so if we think about the bigger issue which is sustainable income incomes that can really provide quality standard of living for young people and we're not talking about lavish um life no secure the bag life would want to talk about that but before we get to that stage we should have a basic living income for young people or for people overall where they can afford life and afford to live and not live from hand to mouth yes. right so that's important um and then we talk about as well 
that aside from just sustainable income but the realities of young people advancing through these jobs so getting a good income or a livable wage is good one that's the first step but the next thing is that you know how likely are you to advance in these particular companies i know we have the stories that we see on twitter where young people advance and they do well but how many of them really yeah. i have friends who have been at companies for years and really and truly they are still at their entry level they say that entry level is entry level when you just enter the first year not true you stay at entry level for a while yeah. right and it's reflected not just in the wage but just reflected in this overall access and opportunity and so people tend to think that oh jamaicans leave jamaica just for the wage that's probably the first thing they think about but they also think about the ability to accelerate i mean the other day we saw on the news what do we see two big stories one and i know all of the people who were in the news actually i know them personally have them in my whatsapp the girl mm-hmm. on wall street right um she was on the guild um last year right um how many how many young people um who have that first class honors or um whatever would be able to say that they would get that kind of high profile job no yeah right yes you get a job in the company don't get me wrong because we know that there are companies like um there are certain banking institutions i know do invest in young people i know sajiko for example definitely invest in young people they have their sajiko program every year but the question is generally speaking is you know how many young people would get a certain level of job just on entry not many right you'd have to be like really exceptional or you have to have links oh we know mm-hmm. the links arguments already you do not even have to get into that right exactly. and then the other thing no so so, so that's the thing i'm talking about the wage is one but next thing how quickly could you um accelerate in this company how quickly could you advance even if you bring all the skills or you develop the skills while you're there that's another thing that we think about so that those things need to be dealt with while we're talking about you know repayment for slps the point now about bonding now for me i see what they're trying to get at because if you bond someone you know the longer time you're bonding the longer time they're going to stay here and you know reinvest in your country but that once again is just a band-aid on the issue and there's no real you, that compliance work that you require you're going to have to put in some strict measures in place it would mean that you'd have to tell young people that once you're bonding you can't travel at all because you're probably going to force young people to, to, to run off mm-hmm. because if you're going to bond me three years to five years are you going to bond me five years or more to jamaica and you can't guarantee me a job what are you bonding me to poverty that's a real question that they must ask themselves. You can't bind young people to poverty. That's mm-hmm. why you're going to see crime and scamming and all different manners. Um, you're going to find new forms of scamming because you're going to put them degrees to use in in in, in illegitimate ways. Yes. Because they're going to bond me to, to, to the lack of opportunity and, and, and lack of resources. Not cool. So what I think would be a better thing to look at is even if you quote-unquote bond someone, it shouldn't be bonding to say you can't leave. The country mm-hmm. it should be a bonding to say you're helping to facilitate my opportunities so even if you're going to bond me to jamaica it should be that you at least have if you you give me six months to find a job or six months to a year to find a job although sorry to me is a long time but let's say six months to a year to find a job and if you can't there's a backup plan but you can't just bond me with no opportunity or mm-hmm. you facilitate opportunities elsewhere so i have to resend I have to some pay some kind of tax 
right abandoning tax or whatever you know remittances are something that i have to give back to the country yes. while i'm away making this certain amount of usd because at no at this level i'll be making a lot more mm-hmm. um but you are facilitating that so you have some partnerships with certain companies the apple the facebook um the the big like how the young lady got the Morgan Stanley, she's working at Morgan Stanley on Wall yeah. Street. You'll get some of those companies because Jamaica's stock ex- stock market is known as one of the best in the world. So we have the legitimacy to be able to partner with some of these um, Wall Street companies so that young people, just like the young lady, who have the, even if they don't have the first class honors, but they're excellent, they're good at what they do. And that's the next thing we'll talk about before we end this program about, you know, young people don't necessarily have the top degrees, but are really good at what they do. So we'll get yeah. to that. Um, right, so for them to be able to access these companies. So you're quote-unquote still bonded to Jamaica. You, know? you still have to give back. You still have to contribute. But you're not bonded where you have to stay here physically um, because you're able to access opportunities but still have this connection where you're repaying your SLD or you're giving back to your country. And I think if we have that kind of positive reinforcement page, we may see people or young people or people overall more willing to pay their SLD fees because if you make the money, you know, what excuse you have now for no one pay? You got always have one and two delinquent. Me know the system said everybody out. They always have a one man with all the beat the system. We get that, but the majority of people are productive citizens. They want to give back, right? They want to repay their fees, but they can't because there's no resources there. So if you facilitate it for them, there's a lot more grounds on you to stand on to say, well, we're going to bond you. Or we demand that you pay your fees because there is a facilitating environment for that kind of repayment and engagement. But you can't just shout out bonding and dictate bonding and all of that if you don't have that kind of environment that provides resources that facilitates the payment mm-hmm. of, of these particular loans. So yeah, and, and just to note on the commission's recommendation um, regarding bonding, um, the GOJ rolled out the $1 billion Marfa Scarvey graduate um, scholarship program that provided graduate scholarships for public sector employees to pursue graduate degrees in areas of national priority at UWE, UTEC, mm-hmm. Johns Hopkins University, King's College, Harvard University, and Oxford University. The first cohort of this scholarship program was announced in August of last year and consisted mm-hmm. of 30 public servants. On the issue of the Student Loan Bureau, the commission outlined a major the commission outlined a major recommendation to address the cost of tertiary education in Jamaica. This is an example of a, a This is the establishing of a child opportunity fund, a voluntary established through a public-private partnership wherein parents up to a prescribed income level are allowed tax-free savings towards their child's tertiary education. On this, the commission outlined that this child opportunity fund, parents will contribute to the scheme and the GOJ will make a specified contribution to this account. Um, Mm -hmm. Secondly, the funds will be managed and invested by private financial institutions. Um, Thirdly, the funds will only be made available once a child reaches tertiary age. And for Children on the Path program, the GOJ will make the parental contribution along with the specified governmental contribution. Right. So I, I don't know how... Well, it's good to hear this because I do recall as well when we had a consultation that I would have given a similar um, recommendation 
Um, not in all those exact words, of course. But again, that's my recommendation about having some kind of fund. At the time, I would have talked about using the NET, which is National mm-hmm. Education Trust, to be um, uh, potentially the fund or you'd say the holder of the fund or the location yes. of the fund. That's what I would have recommended at the time where it is that parents would be able to make a contribution. So it's good to hear this um, this particular thing stated explicitly in the report. Um, I haven't read all the report, by the way. It's, as you said, it's, as we know, it's 348 pages. I've read all of it. Yeah. I've been going through, um, you know, section by section right now. So I haven't gotten to that point. So it's good to know that. Uh, and I tell you, you know, Paige, Jamaica always have the great ideas. I tell you, it's just about execution. It's so I, I, But I think, though, that's something that needs to be done. No, I don't think, I think that should be one of the first deliverables. Um, because I think that's something that we, I mean, even if it's phased in, but that's something that should definitely be going now because right now we know that a financial model is needed. The exactly. whole matter of financing social institutions, it's arbitrary, uh, it, it, it lacks transparency, there are so many inefficiencies and ineffectiveness with our tertiary institutions, money is being pumped in and the results aren't coming out and sometimes where money should be pumped in is not pumped in or not enough money is being pumped in. We know that right now the government isn't paying the amount that they are supposed to pay. At least I know for you specifically, the percentage that there's the 80-20 model is definitely not in force. Um, the government pays fluctuating amounts over the years and the university pick up the deficit and that causes an entire different issue internally that we see with issues coming out like, well, policies that emerge from that, like e-registration of students, those kind of things emerge from those kind of uh, issues with the financial model. So we, we, when we think about the fact that these issues are happening as we speak, and I had to do the registration when I was president. We had a deregistration mm-hmm. issue when I was president. I had to deal with that as president at Mona, which was two years ago. So because these issues are happening right now as we speak, something like this fund, where parents are putting money in needs to start now. And I think it should also be retroactive where, I mean, if there's a pair, if the child isn't at tertiary age yet, um, at tertiary age in quotations, because you know, we're hearing this whole thing about them extending secondary secondary schools as in the time you have to spend there. So the age, I think the age is going up as we speak. But so if the child isn't at tertiary age yet, where they can be legally enrolled in a tertiary institution, I think the parents should be allowed. So I don't think they should have. I don't think they should have a a limit per se to say, oh, once a child touch sixteen or seventeen, they can't put in. If they can't put in one year and 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 the money, the investment works, allow them to, right? But yeah. I think they should start that part. They should start the process of implementing such a fund right now because we do need greater support. I talked about it before, you know, twenty seven percent is the enrollment rate right now of a population of three million people where we're talking about we need Jamaica twenty thirty vision place to work, do business, raise families. And I'm just ad libbing that particular thing. But we need a skilled labor force, right? Yes. And you, you mentioned the fact that between the nineteen nineties and, 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 and the two thousands we'd have had a 85 percent migration rate of, of our tertiary tertiary skilled persons. Right now we only have forty five percent um who are tertiary skilled we need an educated skilled population to drive our economy to drive development in all areas so we need to get this model in place so we can fund tertiary education and i will just reiterate this quickly that tertiary education for those listening is not just about the people in traditional institutions anything that you do that is 
post-secondary is some level of tertiary um, tertiary training. And so we're talking about the technical, the vocational, as well as people that are involved in the theory areas. No, yeah, you're absolutely right. Because as we know, the, the largest barrier to entry is finances. People just can't right. afford it. So this would be a good way to increase enrollment rates and have students, if, if not an entire degree, have that introduction to tertiary education. Right. Even financing of these microcredits that we spoke about earlier. Exactly. All right. The... To your earlier point about security, the commission also raised an issue of the security of students while at university, where according to the report, safety concerns from students have ranged from issues relating to the inadequate lighting on campus, to the non-presence of sufficient security guards in secluded areas, to questionable individuals roaming the campus, and have, and have been as a result of reports of several, of, and have been a result of various reports of criminal activities. Still, it is even more concerning as two of the island's largest institutions, the University of the West Indies and the University of Technology are in violent prone communities. The report also details instances of sexual harassment that tend to go underreported at various tertiary mm -hmm. um, campuses. And this is a great concern to many women and, and students on campus and to, to everyone. Um, what is Jutz's position on this issue and the possible recommendations? So to, to piggyback on your your specification on UE and UTEC, I will right now call up government because many different administrations have promised young people, particularly when they're trying to appeal to our electorates, that they're going to create university towns or create a university town in that particular area. Mm -hmm. And as a student, who has been, you know, at all levels, been a student, is a student, was a student leader at the U level, is a student leader. I mean, I was president when the young lady, Jasmine Dean, went missing, who remains missing today, mm -hmm. right? I was a, I was the president of UE when the UTEC student was killed, right? Um, as in the, the latest one that was killed um, coming from school was Rob. Yes. Um, and... I was also the president when I met with the Jamaica Constabulary Force, the head of the the command for this era. I think it was the for the Mona. I think from I think it's it's a it's a trial out a distance and had a meeting with her and we talked about patrols and we had to implement an old patrol system and all of that. Um, we had to have police coming on campus to do patrols, fashion lights, all of that just to make our students feel safe. I was also the president who had to go down to the communities um, and speak to quote-unquote community leaders, you know, that's what they call themselves, um, to mm. be able to talk about in a very candid way protection of my students who live there and had to traverse the communities um, at night and even in the days because robberies happened at all times of the day and the night and talk about, you know, protection because what was also happening was that uh, to appeal to the fact that we were providing income for their communities because a lot of our students were renting in these communities. So when you rob us, you drive us out. Your own family members lose income because we buy from the corner shop and we, we, we say, look, a rent house over there. So, so you're losing money in your community. Mm -hmm. And I was a president, I, um, or was a president who had to do all those things. So let me tell you, I know firsthand at all levels, almost talk about safety and security concerns for students. And that's why I say that we need priority for that. And in the report, I know they mentioned it, 
and I know they would have it too because I was one of the person who talked about that at the consultations. Yeah. But it, it it would trigger more hope in me if I would see a section or an entire section that says safety and security because you're seeing surprise, right? Yes. And for the higher education policy, that's something that I am I am very you know very strong on and i've been saying at all the meetings that we've had so far that we have to ensure that this is an entire section by itself and there's priority on this and the certain security issue too um page it's multi-layered is more than just you know man sick of picnic or man sick of student rather um you know the country girl just came out to me just now um <laughs> man sick of students sick of secret things or whatever you mentioned it on yourself just knowing the introduction of the question talk about sexual harassment date rape those are things that pervades campuses and it's not talked about right mm-hmm. when you talk about if we have proper reporting mechanisms in these schools do we have shas on campus we call them sexual um, sexual harassment advisors on you that is we call them shas sexual harassment advisors do we have that kind of framework on, on all tertiary institutions where if you are harassed or um god forbid a rape instance there's someone who you can go to speak to who can help you to accelerate and advance your case right and advance in a sensitive manner right um is there counseling um for you and outside of that another part of um you know safety and security as well is that even at your home back home as a commuting student if something should happen to you you know is there mechanisms in your school that you could go to to seek help that could help because one thing that i realize and i keep saying this in interviews that i have done in the media that what we have realized in the pandemic is how important schools are in the fabric of our society and we have yes. always taken for granted that you know you go to school education whatever but schools are an important socialization it is an important part of the nurturing agent schools are if we if we could equate schools to a parent figure we would equate them to mothers right mm-hmm. they're they're um not to say that only mothers are nurturers because i'm very very much pro male nurture i was grown by a single father but the mm-hmm. point is um that schools are like nurturers and so if a child or student finds that they can't get help at home the next best place they will think about is school sometimes not even so much church because you know yes. people tend to have this thing you know the church people them chat too much or whatever 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 they're more to think about can i speak to a guidance counselor at my school or a counselor at my school or is there some teacher that i trust that i can talk to or a lecturer or whatever so yeah. we have to create we have to make our schools safe spaces as I, I have to repeat that we have to let our schools become safe spaces for our students physical well-being as well as their mental well-being oh, yeah, right absolutely right and 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 talk about you know just even how we engage our students and how we make them feel like they have autonomy in the space if they can speak up about certain things if they will be supported you know some lecturers just even at the classroom level they shut down students all the time and that alone already creates a a, a culture of of unsafety because you don't feel that the people who should protect you you can go to them so if you feel like your admin is against you as a student if you're raped on campus yeah. right you think you're gonna go to your admin that um while you were on hall you were raped because the school already created this environment that you feel unsafe so safety and security is so much more than just oh you need bodies underground in terms of you need enough um security, security. guards at different yeah. levels you need enough lighting that's an important and that needs to be done believe you me but the mental safety is also very key to that 
because you may only have 10 security guards on a campus because for whatever reason you can't afford it but because you create this atmosphere of well-being for the student they still feel safe and that they know who to go to to protection or they know who to run to or who to ask or whatever so the mental and physical safety of campuses need to be improved you're absolutely right um one other thing I wanted to ask you is you 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 talked before about the pandemic and its impact on tertiary students. Can you speak about some more of the challenges that tertiary students are facing in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic and pay special interest um, to students with physical and learning disabilities? Definitely. So let me start off with differently abled students first. So at the UE, at the UE level, the uh, UMONA scenario, I know for a fact that they have tried to ensure that they engage or maintain engagement with, with, with differently abled students through the online platforms. Because I remember when I was president and we talked about transitioning fully online, because for the first semester that what we had to do, we had to go fully online. Um, I don't know that now they're using an hybrid format. They had to, we, I talked a lot about ensuring that these platforms were compatible with certain um, differently abled uh we call them assistant devices or assistant um, assistant programs or assistance programs. And that was done, I recall that. So, but that's you I can speak of. Right now we have to, as Jutes, we have to try, we're, try, we're trying to find out, you know, how many of these institutions one actually has, um, or actually have rather differently able students enrolled, right? Mm-hmm. And then two, these differently able students that are enrolled how are they being engaged and is the engagement effective because you once again the checkplace checkbox thing is always a thing that we do um in education overall we're going to say oh yeah man they're engaged but are they being effectively engaged Mm -hmm. um and that's something that that we're trying to find out i don't have an answer to that but that's definitely something that we're focused on right now answering that question and then from the from the answers that we get, then we decide how it is that we'd want to further the conversation or further the solutions required. But we definitely need to ensure that all tertiary institutions that have differently able students enrolled, that they have these um, facilities to engage them. And we also need to ensure that even if they don't have these students enrolled just yet, that they still invest in creating these spaces and these platforms. Why? Because maybe the reason why you don't have any students is because they don't have the platforms right and education should be equitable it should be accessible by all once you're able to learn and to access you should be allowed to so it shouldn't be a case where i can't enroll institution because you don't have the 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 resource you should invest in resource on having um the other thing that we see emerging is uh well i already talked about the engagement you know teachers aren't equipped to teach Mm -hmm. in that environment what we're also seeing is that the entire curriculum of these institutions need to be revised because the pedagogy and the andragogy that we have um, in place, most of them were never intended for online learning formats. They were meant yes. to be delivered in a face-to-face um, environment. So they have to be revised. And that's the whole thing has to be thrown out. So while we're throwing out the curriculum to reflect fourth industrial revolution and to reflect modern technology and what's required of the modern labor force, we need to also be reflecting how it is that these things can be delivered or this particular content can be delivered in an engaging, effective format online. That's the thing that we're looking at as well. And the next thing is that there's still issues affecting students like campus hunger that we tend to have forgotten or almost forgotten. Yeah. That 
you know students some students are still on halls and they're still very much hungry and a lot of the programs that were pulled like welfare programs like feeding programs have been pulled because you know thinking about sanitation and safety but there are students who are still very much hungry on campus and that's something that i'm looking forward to working on between now and the summer so i can have something ready to be launched in september that's something i'm holding myself as president accountable for i need something in place because the campus hunger thing is still very much real Mm-hmm. And even for the students who aren't necessarily on campus, but they may be in rental spaces um, uh, or they're even at home, they're still hungry because a lot of these students were relying on welfare programs at school. And I'm talking about tertiary students, not just high school and primary school that we tend to think about when we think about hunger. Mm-hmm. They were relying on welfare programs. Um, I know, for example, students on Newey used to rely on the bus gas program on Newey to eat for certain things or the fact that they had a food bank and they couldn't get groceries per month, once per month. Right, that's something that I would have launched when I was president in collaboration with um with Grace. We had a food bank on campus when I yeah. when I was president, and that has continued. But that's not in place. So at least I don't know if it's in place right now. I, sh- I shouldn't speak to what I don't know. But I know that many institutions don't have that kind of yeah. setup, and that's needed still in the pandemic. So lots of the issues are still very much their pace as it was there before pre-pandemic, but they have become exacerbated. And at the same time, they have become, I would say, almost invisible because we're not on campus anymore to see it, right? And schools yeah. are closed, so you're not really seeing it with your eyes as much anymore. But they're still very much there, and that's why we need to ensure that we still look out for these things and we search out for these things because now is when a lot of our students are being left behind. Um, yeah, so so lastly, I just wanted to get your final thoughts on the Reform for Education report and what Juts would like to see come of it. Okay, so as I've been saying, you know, for this entire interview, which by the way has been exceptional, I just want to pick up and announce that again for this opportunity, is that we have always been exceptional at policy. You know, we have some of the best policy writers in the world, in my opinion. You know, we always know who to engage, what stakeholders to ask. You know, we have all the works, fireworks, everything. The issue has always been execution. And as the chair, uh, Professor Patterson would have said at the launch and even at the meeting that we'd have had, uh, is that a lot of these ideas that have emerged or the solutions that have been proposed by different stakeholders are proposals that were in the report that that was done a few years ago. Right. If you look back at that old report, you'll see that many of these things have been repeated. Uh, so it just goes to show that, generally speaking, we do know what is needed to advance education sector. We do know what is needed to engage our young people, our students, and to ensure that they get the best quality education possible so they can become productive citizens and they can advance the country for Vision 2030 and beyond. So what Juts want to see right now is just action. Mm-hmm. Act no. That's what we're asking. We have young people out there who are frothing at the mouth almost. They are brimming with ideas. They're brimming with the willingness to serve and to give. And we just want to be engaged. So yes, you would have, you know, depended on young people like myself to get recommendations for this report. But now that you have our ideas, how are you going to engage us, help us, so that we can help with the implementation? Because what you need is this kind of iterative process as you go through to ensure that it works right because things do change as you go along i mean you have the general idea yes but the way in which you implement um the strategy that's required may need to change as you go along i mean education quality education has always been the goal that has never changed from years ago 
but the way in which we go about it now in 21st century is changing right so it means that the strategy needs to change so we'd want for young people to be engaged at that level as well so you ask us our ideas we have given it to you you've given a nice fancy report you've presented it you published it you need to engage us in implementation as well as the monitoring and evaluation processes as well because that's required or that's needed that kind of multi-stakeholder engagement at all levels nothing for young people are nothing mm-hmm. for students without students so we want action and we want action now but just also want to ensure that the students that are being affected by these policies and programs are also involved at all levels as well thank you no th- thank you and i want to make special mention of the necessity of monitoring and evaluation in the implementation of programming because i think that jamaica lacks implementation of these policies and where the policies are, in the few instances the policies are being implemented, they lack right. monitoring and evaluation. So we have no idea what the benefits are, unintended consequences are. Right. Um, exactly. Thank you, Christina. Thank you so, so much. This has been a really, really good conversation. I enjoyed chatting with you. Um, thank you for your time. Thank you for all the work that you do in advocating, not just for students, but, you know, just not just for students at UE, but for the larger tertiary education students on um, in Jamaica. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And once again, thank you to the entire Tenement Yard production family for having me. And I look forward to, you know, future collaborations where possible. Yes. Um, this has been another episode of the Checkmate Political Podcast by Tenement Yard Media. Don't forget to check us out on social media at tenementyard underscore and on our website at www.tenementyardmedia.com and don't forget to share the podcast with a friend. You've just listened to Checkmate, a political podcast from Tenement Yard Media. We'd love your support to keep the show going. For as little as a dollar monthly on our Patreon at patreon.com slash tenementyardmedia, you can become a tenant and support us as we educate more people about West Indian politics, history, and sociology. That's patreon.com slash tenementyardmedia to pledge your monthly support or tenementyardmedia.com to make a one-time donation of your choice.